Okay, so I'll move on and um, start off with my first talk about personalized medicine. And um, there's the title. I'm going to concentrate on the following topics. I'm going to talk about where we are with IBD therapeutics and broadly in 2018. Talk about the allure of personalized medicine. This is a very attractive concept, and we'll come down to the devil being in the details and where we've actually, um, where we are in 2018. And a, con a component of this is certainly the concept of treat to target, and I'll, I'll finish off with some conclusions. So in 2018, certainly the advent of the TNF antagonist era has been a tremendous advance in therapeutics and IBD. And um, infliximab, adalimumab, sertolizumab have really benefited our patients. But if you look at this, these bar graphs, and I could substitute evaluating any one of those agents, and you'd reach the same conclusions, look at the y-axis. We're not looking at 80 or 90 percent remission rates. It's 30 to 40 percent corticosteroid-free remission, if we're lucky, at a year under optimal conditions. So there's, a, there's lots to improve. We've had some good signals about how to improve things. The SONIC study was really a beacon in that it signaled to us that combinations of drugs are more effective, and starting early in the course of Crohn's disease is really beneficial. And we've had the first glimmer that we can actually modify the natural history of Crohn's disease. This was the um, REACT study, and it really showed that in a very large population-based study, that we could actually prevent complications of the disease in this study, which evaluated over 2,000 patients for up to two years. However, our current therapies have their limitations, and one of the substantial limitations is risk of infection with the immunosuppressives that we currently use. They're broad-spectrum immunosuppressives, and as the treat registry showed, that they're independently associated with the risk of infection, along with corticosteroid therapy, disease activity, and narcotic use. So there are challenges, and infection, uh, as I mentioned, is one of the chief ones. Another advance that we've had along the way has been the concept of interfering with lymphocyte trafficking, as exemplified by vetalizumab therapy, and understanding this mechanism has really advanced the field, and it's advanced it in that it's provided a new option of class of drugs, but it's also advanced the concept of specific gut targeting. And the payoff here is reduced risk of side effects. And I'm just showing an analysis performed by John Frederick Columbell of the trial data from six studies of vetalizumab and UCNCD. And these are point estimates for various types of infections, serious infection, any infection, upper respiratory tract infection, and lower respiratory tract infection. And what you see here is something quite remarkable. Uh, the, the events here has expressed events per 100 patient years of follow-up that the estimates for vetalizumab are actually lower than placebo. Uh, we had anticipated that they would be similar. We'd never anticipated they'd be lower. But if you think about this, if you're exposed to placebo, you have higher disease activity and you're more likely to receive corticosteroids. And I mentioned from TREAT that those are risk factors for infection. So this is really a fundamental observation and it holds out the promise for the future. And I don't want to say that everything we're doing is bad. Um, so these are, we are making an impact. These are epidemiological data from Alberta. Alberta is this funny Canadian province where really everyone either lives in Calgary or Edmonton. So it's not a bad place to actually do epidemiological studies. 
And what I'm showing here are trends in surgery over a period of three decades, and they do seem to be uh, increasingly dropping in both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So we're doing some right things. So the state of the art in 2018 isn't bad, but it could get better. And this is where personalized medicine comes in, because if you think about this model, there are many opportunities to improve the care of our patients. So the model is this. We start out with a heterogeneic population of patients, and we pick out through prediction rules that determine, A, who's at risk for complications of disease? Who do we really need to treat? And B, what drug do we treat them with? We then apply the treatment, and we apply it according to an algorithmic formula. We monitor the patient along the way, so we use techniques like therapeutic drug monitoring, and we treat towards a specific target. And that target probably is not symptoms. And then if that doesn't work at some specified time-dependent um, decision point, we modify the algorithm. So that, that's the basic concept. And the concept has been around for a long time. And in oncology, it's become standard practice. It's been really delivered there. In IBD, somewhat different. And uh, when I was asked to give this talk, I said, well, wait a minute, I've given this talk before. And what startled me, actually, was the first time I was asked to give this talk was in 2006 in Huntington Beach, California, and that very idyllic-looking picture up at the top. And I was actually debating Steve Hanauer, and I was to take, as I, I think I was somewhat typecast, as giving a negative view of personalized medicine as it pertained in 2006 for IBD therapeutics. And I said, well, let's look at how well this fits the model. Do we have a heterogeneic population at risk? Yes, we do. One point for Steve. Validated predictors of risk? Probably not. Biomarkers to select treatments? No. Highly effective combination therapy? No. Validated surrogate markers? No. And scientific proof of concept? No. So my overall conclusion was this was not ready for prime time in 2006. So remember this slide, and we'll go through where we are in 2018. So what about the heterogeneic population at risk? Well, as I said, well, I already conceded that. We have that. And probably the most um, pragmatic um, example of that are population data from Olmstead County. So here we see patients who are sick enough in the county to get corticosteroid therapy. And remember that that only constitutes about 60% of the patients in, in the county. There's 40% of them that never see corticosteroid therapy. So they don't need our high-tech intervention. But this is looking at the patients who are sick enough to require symptomatic treatment and what happens to them at a year. Now, this slide is always held out as corticosteroids are a tipping point. You have to do something with these patients. But look. If you're an optimist here, and again, I'm, I'm typecast as an optimist, obviously, that a third of the patients do okay, even after getting to the stage where they need corticosteroids. So wouldn't it be wonderful if we could actually determine who those patients are? And not to put too fine a point on that, this concept persists in the modern era. And what I'm showing here are the results from the induction phase of the ustekinumab studies in Crohn's disease. And you see the two trials, Unity 1 and Unity 2, and uh, the, re the response to therapy in the two groups. And you can see that in Unity 1, patients who were pre-selected for having failed a TNF antagonist, that the rates of response and remission are much lower than if you have patients who are less treatment um, 
exposed. So this concept of heterogeneity is well-founded. So IBD, Crohn's disease, and I could show you similar data in ulcerative colitis, is well suited to that model. It's a heterogeneic population. Well, let's move on. What about risk predictors? And um, these have been around for a long time, and um, this is increasingly we're seeing that these items, and Bruce has done work in this area, um, keep coming up. That ileal disease, the notion of um, corticosteroids as a poor prognostic factor, and clinical symptoms, smoking status, these are clinical factors. And they'll get you some ways in determining who's at risk, um, but not to the, the stage where they're actually useful as prognosticators. Um, we've made some progress recently. So this is a clinical prediction rule coming out of Bill's group at UCSD, uh, Perenberg Dulai has um, recently published this study in gastroenterology where they added some of the classic clinical predictors, so no prior history of uh, bowel surgery, TNF antagonist exposure, um, the baseline albumin um, being uh, higher was a good prognostic find, finding, uh, baseline CRP being higher. And if you took these models in a multivariate, these items in a multivariable model, you could actually prognosticate who would respond to vetalizumab therapy. Now, is this really ready for prime time? You'd like to have higher specificity and sensitivity than in the model. The model, I think, is, a, is more a, a benchmark for the future. And what we really need to do to improve on this is actually find the elusive biomarker that's going to improve the model's performance. Um, is endoscopy that biomarker? Well, certainly it's an important prognostic factor. And this classic study by Mathieu L.A. from Paris showing that if you have deep ulcerations at baseline, you're far more likely to require surgery over a five-year period. Now, we've really never actually incorporated this into a prognostic model, but certainly endoscopy has potential. And more uh, easily performed biomarkers. We're now seeing a generation of new tests that have prognostic implications. And this is uh, an analysis, a subset analysis, coming out of the etralizumab development program in ulcerative colitis, where on mucosal biopsy, if you had high expression of alpha E beta 7 in the mucosa, that uh, you were more likely to respond to the monoclonal antibody directed to beta 7. And then another very, um, I think, promising approach is measurement of oncostatin M in tissue in ulcerative colitis. And this is the reverse biomarker in that it was associated, the high expression of, the, of this marker was associated with poor response to TNF antagonists. So this is a glimmer of how we can improve clinical prediction models and ultimately identify the patients that really require therapy. So that's a really important concept, and it's the only way we're going to solve the, the uh, cost-effectiveness challenge we have. We have to become more efficient in our treatments. Well, highly effective therapy, here I think the news is very bright. We've got a lot of new promising therapies, and we've learned a lot in the last decade. We've learned from the top-down study that early introduction of biologic therapy in distinction to step care is an effective strategy. We've learned from Sonic that combinations of drugs are better than single drugs. And we've learned that we can modify the natural history, even with monotherapy, with adalimumab here showing a decrease in hospitalization and surgery rates within one year of therapy. And I already mentioned the REACT data showing that we, in community practice, 
early introduction of combined therapy is more effective than usual step care, even in patients who are experienced to treatment with long disease duration. So these are important learnings, and we've got a new drugs to actually build upon that. So vedolizumab, ustekinumab, we have not seen early introduction therapy studies. We have not seen combination therapy studies. So things are going to get better in terms of highly effective therapies as a component of the personalized medicine model. Well, let's move to treatment targets. And I, I don't think you can go to a meeting these days without being subjected to uh, being told that you need to have a treatment target. And I've just listed here the potential treatment targets that are available. Everything ranging from symptoms through biomarkers, endoscopy, cross-sectional imaging, and histopathology. And I'll briefly discuss each of these um, as it relates to both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And so if we start at the most um, common target that you deal with every day in clinical practice, that's clinical symptoms. And in ulcerative colitis, clinical symptoms are a reasonable surrogate for endoscopy and histopathology. Um, are they ideal? No, of course they're not ideal. We have increasing evidence that treating to an endoscopic target in ulcerative colitis, and these are observational data from the ACT studies, where it's been shown that if you achieve a male uh, clinic endoscopic subscale of 0 or 1 in distinction to a 3 or 4, you do better over the long term with regard to risk of surgery. And in fact, this is also, um, but it's observational data. We don't have the definitive study. So endoscopy being potentially a, a useful treatment target. The preceding slide was to show that in the, in the REACT study, the treating to a symptom-based target was actually an effective strategy. But endoscopy, of course, is more objective, and you're measuring inflammation as opposed to the patient's response to inflammation. And I showed you the LA study that showed that it has prognostic significance. So it would seem to be a reasonable treatment target. Moreover, from the recent uh, biologic th therapies that we have, these are pro the results from probably the best um, endoscopic study, it's the EXTEND study, showing that if you achieve endoscopic remission after 12 weeks, then actually good things happen over the longer term with regard to hospitalization. So there's indirect observational data to suggest endoscopy is a useful target in Crohn's disease. Likewise, in ulcerative colitis, what I mentioned earlier, that the ACT studies, and this is showing the survival curves from ACT, stratified by the various uh, Mayo scores, and you can see that you're less likely to have surgery if you achieve a Mayo score of 0 or 1. And this has led to uh, the experts in the field recommending to practitioners that they should incorporate endoscopy as a treatment target. And uh, just to cut to the chase, in ulcerative colitis, the treatment target is a Mayo score of 0 or 1 plus symptomatic control. And in likewise, in Crohn's disease, its achievement of mucosal healing as defined by absence of large ulceration. And um, unfortunately, we really don't have validated surrogates. We have, these are conceptual, but no one has shown scientifically that they are, in fact, the best treatment target. We are evaluating this question in the REACT-2 study. Uh, I showed REACT earlier was a symptom-based algorithm. This is comparing the REACT-1 result of a symptom-based algorithm to an endoscopy-based decision-making algorithm. And the results of that study should be available in one year. It's approximately 1,300 patients, uh, which will be followed for two years. 
Biomarkers. I'll briefly talk about CRP. You use this in clinical practice. It's a useful marker in Crohn's disease. If you actually make it, about 20% of patients don't make it, so there's a sensitivity issue. But it's highly specific in a patient with active disease. Fecal calprotectin is a gut-specific biomarker for inflammation. And when we look at the operating properties of fecal calprotectin, in Crohn's disease, its um, sensitivity is not too bad. It has problems with specificity. So the combination of fecal calprotectin and CRP, high sensitivity and specificity, might be a good way to monitor Crohn's disease therapy, and I'll come to that in a minute. Uh, in ulcerative colitis, actually, fecal calprotectin, the sensitivity and specificity as shown in this meta-analysis by Mosley, is actually quite high. It's, it's approximately uh, 90%. So in individual patient management, uh, fecal calprotectin is a useful biomarker. As I mentioned, the combination of fecal calprotectin and uh, CRP in Crohn's disease could be a useful biomarker, and this was evaluated in the COM study, which was just published in the Lancet back uh, last year. So this was an RCT in which patients were assigned to either a symptom-based treatment algorithm with a step-up of um, combination therapy or symptom-based step-up. And the endpoint at 48 weeks of therapy was an endoscopic endpoint. And what we see here is that the patients assigned to biomarker-based management as opposed to clinical symptoms actually achieved deep remission more than uh, patients who had usual care. What about ulcerative colitis? And here's where I think things get really is interesting and the future is going to change. So we have symptoms. I've already put in a, uh, an endorsement of symptoms in clinical practice. Bleeding really is a good marker for disease activity, but it's not as good as endoscopy. And histopathology, in fact, might be the ultimate marker. And we see every year two or three cohort studies that show what this slide shows, that when one looks at prognosis over the longer period of time, if you achieve histopathological remission, you do better than either symptoms or endoscopic remission. I think the regulatory agencies are moving towards recognizing that histopathological remission is the treatment target in ulcerative colitis and that it will change clinical practice. We now have validated scores. Uh, this is the Robarts Histopathological Index and the Nancy Index to measure histopathological disease activity. So that's really what we needed to invoke this. So talking about the pieces, the final piece of treatment according to um, personalized medicine is inflammation of algorithmic care. <clears throat> and I wanted, if you were enjoying your breakfast for most of the meeting and wondering why the slides were messed up and those sorts of things, you only have to take away one message from this talk, really, is that in 2018, step care is alive and well in ulcerative colitis, and that's the way you should be thinking, a progressive approach. But in Crohn's disease, step care is dead, okay? If you're practicing step care for Crohn's disease in 2018, that's passe. We've really moved beyond that. We really need to target the therapy, the high-risk patient, with highly effective therapy early in the course of the disease. So coming back to the question we asked, does it fit the model in 2018 as opposed to 2006? Well, we made progress. Heterogeneic patient population risk, that's a given. We've, we've made some progress in risk prognostication, and I've showed you the um, DULI study. 
Biomarkers is still a missing element. We don't have validated biomarkers. Highly effective combination therapy, here's where we have made strides. We've got new combinations of drugs that are effective, and we've got a lot of new agents to use in combinations and evaluate further. We don't have a validated surrogate marker, but trials are underway to look at that. Scientific proof of concept, yes, we've actually shown that applying algorithms can change the natural history of the disease. So we have made progress. So in conclusion, where do we need to go? I think it's fairly obvious. We need better biomarkers to identify high-risk patients. We need to figure out the next generation of combination therapies. We have to validate biomarkers to predict response, and we need better efficacy surrogates. And um, we ultimately will build additional proof-of-concept studies. So I'll close there. Thank you.